We're just going to continue on in Mark. So if you want to turn to Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Um, And uh, I just want to continue to bathe this in prayer because I've learned, especially as I'm working through these messages, that that's really where the power of God rests and that's where the power of our church lives. So uh, let's pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to share once again. And um, thank you for giving me words to speak. And um, thank, for, thank you for your faithfulness of bringing Steve back, Steve and Pam, uh, safely. And uh, the serve team back to America. And um, just pray for all the, the rest that they need and all the um, energy that they need to keep going. And um, just pray that this message hits home, God. And um, let you speak what you need to say. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen. All right, <clears throat> so yeah, Mark uh, chapter 7, verse 31. So he ret- then he, being Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And after looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were, they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I'm going to... Just go right off the bat and say, I'm not going to go into the ears and the spitting and all that. That's a really interesting, you know, delve into first century medicine, and I welcome you to check it out. It's actually genuinely cool, Um, but we're going to crop that out this morning. Um, So Jesus is healing lots of people, and yet this specific person, the text calls out that he took this deaf and mute person and pulled him aside privately and did it in secret. And then he asked his friends who had brought him to not talk about it. But it says that they zealously proclaimed it. That means that they didn't just say, hey, did you hear about this guy, Jesus? They were screaming, they were shouting, they were telling everybody they knew that what Jesus had done for their friend. Once God's done something in your life, it's pretty hard to keep you silent. So between the exorcism of Legion in Gerasenes and the Syrophoenician woman that we were talking about last week, and these healings, word about Jesus continues to build. And now, if you remember from last week, we were talking about the Syrophoenician woman or the Gentile woman and all that that meant. Remember that that reminded us to uh, trust God no matter what and surrender to him. So we're going to build on that this week. Now, let's think about this, though, because when we read these passages, something seems wrong to us. Like, why, Jesus? Why wouldn't you want them to tell others? Why would you do it in secret? Like, this seems crazy to us because, you know, if Jesus came, we'd take care of everything. We would have a marketing campaign. We'd set up a social media presence for him. We would live stream these healings so that everyone could see. And like, come on, there you go. Jesus did these really cool things. Believe in him. And crowds gathered just like they do today to see magicians do tricks. And this crowd wanted to see him do a trick. They wanted to say, they please, Jesus, check it out, this guy, heal him. But there was something more to that, and Jesus saw that. He chose to do it in secret because healing the deaf and the mute, the blind, the leprous, 
These were understood to be signs of the Messiah. This is why when John the Baptist was put in prison for his ministry, Jesus sent comfort to him, saying, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. This was their exchange. This was Jesus and John's way of telling each other, Yes, what you did prepared the way for me. I'm the Messiah. Check it out. Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus arrived on the scene, saying that this is what it would look like when the Messiah came. Say to those who have an anxious heart. Anyone here with an anxious heart? Okay, then these are for you. Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is what the Messiah brings when he came to earth. In his compassion, Jesus healed those who in faith came to him. He couldn't help it. That's just who he is. And yet he was trying to be careful to avoid being crowned king by the people. He didn't want to revolt on his hands and him to be made Messiah that way. There was a very specific time, as we know from the Seder, from Passover, there was a very specific time and meaning and the whole thing about when the Father had designated for the Son to be crucified and to enter into his kingdom. That, this was not it. So Jesus said, yes, come on over here, but let's do this secretly. You think the crowds were kind of seeing this deaf and mute person going, if Jesus heals this person, wonder what, you know, this will mean the Messiah. Well, he did it secretly. And I'll just give you a little taste of the, the spitting in the tongue and all that. It actually just means that Jesus healed him in the same way that a first century doctor would heal him. So if somebody did happen, if his friends did happen to see it, it would have looked kind of normal. But we'll put that aside for now. So nonetheless, though, this deaf and mute person is speaking and hearing, and all of his friends are telling everybody, you can imagine that the lost sheep of Israel are realizing that the Messiah has come. And you can imagine that how exciting this would be if all these prophecies, all these centuries, thousands of years building to this moment, and in your lifetime, Jesus has come, the Messiah has come. Now, the other reason that Jesus avoided public signs and wonders is because they don't convert people who are not humble. We hear people say, well, if only, you know, God did this or gave me that, if I got this job or if he healed me from this, then I would believe, okay? But, you know, if he shows up right here, right now, I'll believe. You know, like we, we want all these things, but when you can kind of hear it in their voice that there's no humility, that they really don't want to follow Jesus, they are just wanting what they, you know, they're calling his bluff. I don't know. But we see people in this story overwhelming Jesus when he's doing miracles and healing and giving out food and all these things. Like when things are good, they're loving Jesus. But later on, when he starts, when he's giving these harder teachings, people start to filter out. And even his disciples, as we know, left him for the cross. And so um, this was yet another reason why Jesus knew that the more the powerful live stream video that proves once and for all that Jesus has power, he's God, wouldn't have been what we thought it would do. Let's continue on to Mark 
8. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. I love that little part, little part at the end there. It says some of them have come from far away. How would he have known that if he didn't speak to them? I love that Jesus is so um, loving and compassionate that he's even going around and having conversations with these thousands of people to know that they are um, coming from far away. But when we hear this, you might be having a deja vu moment. You might be going, wait, wait, wait. Steve preached this message a few weeks ago, right? And it does sound similar. However, this is called the feeding of the 4,000. A few weeks ago, there was the feeding of the 5,000. And so that was the different location. There was Bethesda versus Capernaum. And then the 5,000 versus the 4,000. In that situation, they had only been with him for one day. And in this situation, they've now been with him for three days. And Mark and Matthew record this, these two different um, miracles. So we know that these are separate, distinct things. And why would Jesus do something like this twice? Why would it be recorded like this when they're so similar? Well, I think that even though the scenario is pretty much the same, the point is that the disciples are learning how to do what Jesus would do. That's the point of being a disciple. It means to follow your rabbi so that when you know, you see your rabbi in this situation, this scenario, you see what he does, and so you could do that some other time. You see him encounter this person, this is how he would respond to that. So the whole point was to literally walk in the footsteps of your rabbi and do what they would do. So I think that the reason this is, is counted twice is because there's some lesson that Jesus wanted to teach and it wasn't getting through the first time and so there needed to be a second time. But let's dive into that word compassion because we do know that word but it's a really cool word to go into. So the Greek for that is... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> and I'm just showing because it's a fun word to say. So say it with me. Splachnizomai. It's fun, right? Um, it actually is where we get the word gizzard. So, it's, uh, there's the word gizzard. It means the bowels, the inner parts. You're feeling something in your inner parts. And so, compassion is where, um, when you're feeling something with passion, but that doesn't help you very much. It help, it's feeling it in your inner parts. And it implies action. It's not, no one can have passive compassion. If you feel something in your inner parts, you are moved to action. Now, you may have, how many of you have heard um, when they talk about Jesus' passion on the cross? Have you, how many of you have ever heard that phrase, passion of the cross? Okay, so passion was this word that was coined for this unique event. And so compassion didn't just, though, um, didn't just, didn't just encompass Jesus' death on the cross, but also his entire ministry. When when we look at the Father sending his Son, that was compassion. The miracles, the teachings, everything was compassion. And don't ever believe the myth that, you know, Jesus was love and peace and all this stuff, but God, God has always been previous to Jesus represented as wrathful and angry. That's not true. From Genesis to Revelation, God is the same. And when the and it's funny how in uh, the Gospels Jesus speaks about the wrath and judgment and hell 
And yet, when, um, when, Moses asks, when Moses asks God to show him who he is, he says, The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then it continues on to say, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And I love, and this, uh, this actually, this, is, this blessing is said many times in the Jewish community. I love that when God reveals himself, he first reveals that he is compassionate, gracious, merciful. That's who he is. But he's also a king. And we can't divide his love, his justice, his holiness from each other. They are seen through each other. But let's go back to the passage. So compassion is that feeling in the inner parts. Now, three days in, you know, away from the city, three days without some food, how would you be feeling in your inner parts? Would you be like, yay? No? Yay? Okay. I mean, some of you, it's lunchtime soon, and you're already kind of like, come on, hurry up, Bill. Um, so three days, you can imagine everyone around him, and probably including the disciples, are starting to feel in their inner parts some hunger. And yet Jesus, in his, when he says, I am compassionate, I feel compassion, he's saying, I feel for these people. And we need to remember that that is what our God says. He doesn't... Have his, you know, he doesn't have his mind on himself. He has his mind on us. He's thinking about us. Now, uh, Jesus is building a lesson, and he's repeating it over and over again. And a few weeks ago, when uh, Steve preached on the feeding of the 5,000 and the calming of the storm, there were a couple of recurring things that he said. Do you remember any of those things? You remember, first one starts with nothing, Nothing, I, yes, nothing is impossible with God. And the second one, to keep your eyes on Jesus. No matter what we're going through, to keep our eyes on Jesus. I didn't know there'd be a test. Okay, so nothing is impossible with God and to keep your eyes on Jesus no matter what. And this is a recurring thing. This is a thing that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples over and over again. Now, as I mentioned, this is the second time this feeding of the fi- the feeding has happened of the large crowd. And he's clearly shown, Jesus has shown that he can feed thousands of people, that he can do it. He is all powerful. He's got this. So the disciples have this, right? They're going to just knock it out of the park. They're going to follow him. They know exactly what he's going to do, right? Not if you've read this before. They say, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Like, oh, no. You know, and, and to me, this goes like, oh, I just said this before. You, come on. I can do it. Clearly, you know I can feed thousands of bread. You might even still have that basket of bread that you had left over from the last time. And yet they're forgetting. They're not trusting. They're figuring out how can this be done? We can look at these and go, 
disciples, you're so foolish. Come on, look at this. This is Jesus we're talking about. But how many times has God done something in our lives and yet we forget it a day later or a year later? And we go, ah, now I remember. The disciples are examples for us and of us. We make the same mistakes as them. We're all guilty of underestimating God and forgetting to trust him. Now, and wherever you are, Jessica, thank you for making this uh, graphic for me. Um, the Christian life is about learning to make, uh, through these kinds of experiences, to become more like Jesus, to get closer and closer to his heart. And it's not going to be this straight up and down, uh, straight up everything, you know, gets better and better and better, and you always ace the test. You're going to fail. You're going to make mistakes. It's going to be this up and down process, but we're drawing closer to the heart of Jesus. And that's where he wants to bring us. That's what it means to be a disciple, is to get closer to the compassion of Jesus, the splachnon, the heart of what, uh, Je- what Jesus sees. But God is not pleased when we forget what he's done for us, when we fail to trust him. The disciples, let me go back here a second. The disciples' response may look innocent enough, like, where are we going to get bread? And that seems like, I mean, if... I was asked to feed thousands of people, it would be a legitimate response to say, where are we going to get thousands of bread? I don't know where are we going to get thousands of bread. But when you're asking the God who created the universe, where are we going to get this bread? I don't know, maybe Jesus. So this is not okay. This is where God is not pleased when we fail to trust him and show faith. So let's look at, um, let's look at Israel wandering in the desert, for example, in the Psalms. It says, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that the water gushed out and the streams overflow. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord, the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Or also uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, it says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the days of the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would never enter his rest? But those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Remember, this was... It's, uh, God often comes back to the Exodus. These were people who had prayed for hundreds of years to be freed from slavery. God answered their prayers and took them out, fed them, gave them, uh, gave them food and water, helped them, brought them to promised land. And yet they still continued to disbelieve him. Disbelief is the underlying sin in every single thing we've ever done since the Garden of Eden. Failure to follow and trust God has been the underpinning issue. And we know this because Jesus did no miracles in areas that didn't have faith, uh, where there was no faith and where there was disbelief. When people are like, show us a miracle. Come on, we want to see you do it. Come on, you can do it. Come on. He didn't do it. He didn't need to. He didn't need to prove it. But what I love is that the story continues. It says, and Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. I mean, again, remember, if this was me and somebody didn't trust me, I'd be frustrated. But I love that Jesus says, 
how many loaves do you have? So he's taking them through this again. And he told the crowd to sit on the ground. And when he'd taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. Now, I assume he gave the Hamotzi blessing, which is the blessing on the bread that we did on at the Seder. And the reason I bring that up is because that blessing in it contains a submission, an understanding of where our life comes from. The Hamotzi blessing, like all the blessings that we do, Jesus is God, equal with the Father. And yet, he submits to the Father for giving him this bread. And so he knew that his power, he was still under the Father. And so that's why I call out the fact that he gave thanks because he realized that everything he did was from and for God. And so that, I think, is Jesus modeling that for us, that we are not co-equal with the Father, we are not God, and yet Jesus did it. So clearly we should realize that every time we give thanks, we may have earned the money, but where did the job come from? We may have, you know, and you can keep going with this. And so the point is, we need to remember and submit to God whenever we get a blessing and whenever we do anything. Now, the text does not make this clear, but I don't think the bread and the fish were multiplied until the disciples started handing it out. And the reason I say that is because he gave the, he gave the disciples the opportunity to participate in the miracle. This wasn't just something he did over here and then said, ta-da. He gave his disciples the opportunity to be a part of this miracle. In Genesis 1, all of us through Adam are commanded to care and work with God's creation. And it's no different today. God, this God of the universe, this King of kings, who does not need us, he chooses, though, to do work through us. He chooses to do the miracle through the disciples, and today he's still doing miracles through us. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, that word satisfied, I'm going to assume it means satisfied. If you spent three days in the desert and you did not have any food, and I'm going to assume a little crumb would not be satisfying. So, you know, breaking this bread up into 4,000 pieces and saying, okay, there you go, probably didn't do it. So this was a legitimate miracle. They were satisfied. They were ready to go back home, some of them on their long journey. What's cool about this is that um, the basketfuls, the Greek here is different from the Greek uh, the word used here is different from the word used in the other in the feeding of the 5,000. In that time, it was the feeding, these just normal baskets that you probably have in your mind, you know, Easter baskets or whatever thing you have in your brain of uh, the size of those baskets. But this basketful is actually a large basket. It could even be considered the size of a bathtub or a cart. So you can imagine that before Jesus gave them these basketfuls of bread, they had their 12 baskets of bread in the feeding of the 5,000. And they're like, okay, cool. I'm going to carry this food along. And then the bread runs out. And just like the Israelites in the desert, they forget and go, oh, God, can, who's going to give us this bread? And instead of saying, oh, let me give you some more baskets. So you remember, he gives them like this giant amount of bread left over. And so it's amazing how God's like clearly trying to make a point like, you get it? I can do this. I've got this. Now, 
I couldn't resist the opportunity. If you know me, I'm a math science guy. And so when I see 4,000 people and I see bread and I see satisfied, those to me equal a word problem. And so I have to then do the math. And so I was like, okay, well, let's assume everybody got a loaf of bread. I won't do the calculation, but let's, uh, let's assume everybody got a loaf of bread. How much space would that take up? Well, it turns out it takes up the space of a semi-truck. Um, so the next time you see one of those semi-trucks delivering food to Safeway or Fred Meyer, just remember that was the amount of bread that the disciples spread out, gave out. And if um, Matthew says that there were women and children involved as well, so it may have been even two or three of these. So I hope that that sticks in your brain the next time you see one of those drive by. You're like, that's cool that you, uh, Safeway, are delivering some bread, but my God did that thousands of years ago. And... This is what God can do through his church. We look around and go, what can we do? We, we're just... And God is like, I can do things through you. It's my power, not yours. And this isn't the first time that God's done this. In uh, 2 Kings, for Elisha, God provided for 100 people out of 20 loaves of bread. And as we've been talking about, you know, when the Israelites were wandering through the desert, who provided the manna for them? God. This is something that God is trying to tell us over and over again over these last few chapters in Mark, but also throughout the entire Bible. I'm trustworthy. I'm faithful. I have the power to take care of you. You don't, you're not doing this on your own. Trust me. Even when we fail to trust him, he's still faithful. God does not want blind faith from you. He's got lots of examples in his word and through the testimonies of others. We read his word every day because the disciples heard these stories all the time. And yet they'd still forgotten. They still disbelieved. We need to be in his word all the time. We need to be soaking this up so that we remember when the time comes to trust God and go, "Mm, can I trust you? We know we can. So remember what Steve said again. What was the first one? Nothing is impossible with God and... And no matter what, keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, once you think you've got that lesson solved, you know, you're like, I got this now. I'm going to walk in that promise. That's great. The compassion of God, though, the inner parts, the depth of God's love is deeper than we can imagine. And so after you get this lesson, God's going to take you to the next level. He's going to take you to the deeper level and a deeper level. He's going to draw you closer and closer to his heart. And even though we are... I didn't say if, I said we are going to stumble and we are going to make mistakes. We repent and trust him and follow him. He will be faithful and he will keep bringing us closer. I love that the God of the universe is okay with taking his time in us. And, you know, rather than just like, poof, you're a perfect Christian going like, this is going to take your whole life, but I'm okay with that. That's such a beautiful God. Now, I want to ask you, what impossible thing does God need to do in your life? Do you need to grow in compassion for the lost or the suffering? Do you need to give forgiveness or seek forgiveness? For some of you, the impossible thing that God needs to do in your life is save you from sin and death. As Steve says, there's a miracle sitting next to you. We were brought out of darkness. We've turned away from sin and we've been adopted into God's family. And yet it's so easy for us to go, I wish God would still do miracles. (laughs) You know, think about that. God is doing miracles all the time. Here is the proof. Jesus once asked what was easier, 
to heal a paralyzed person or to forgive their sins. Now, in our minds, we can go, what's a paralyzed person? I mean, think about the ligaments and the nerves and the, the, and we're like, we think of the physical. And as we should, I mean, we should pray for physical needs. We should pray for jobs. We should pray for finances. We should pray for marriages. These are all good prayers. But God is, from his perspective, concerned primarily with your relationship with him. Are you in his kingdom? Are you following him? Are you forgiven? That's what is primary in God's mind. Remember, he's done this through the resurrection of Jesus. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life, but whoever does have the Son will not perish but has eternal life. And that is a miracle. Remember that the compassion of God leads him to action. God wants to restore and redeem his kingdom through us. So turn to him while you can and let him do a miracle in you and through you. Let's pray. God Almighty, thank you so much for giving me this message um, and writing it. And God, I pray that um, you speak to everyone where they're at. And um, just so thankful, Lord, for the opportunity to serve. And uh, I know you've done a miracle in my life and you'll continue to do a miracle in everyone in this church. Um, Praise you, God, for being patient with me, being patient with Northview, being patient with your church. And... um, May you be glorified in all of it. In your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen.